0: Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Sumati Sparks, who is a polyamory and relationships coach. Sumati coaches people of all relationship configurations, gender expressions, sexual orientations, and cultures to create successful, consensual, ethical, non-monogamous, that's the key here, non-monogamous love and intimate connections. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Sumati.
1: Thank you, I'm so glad to be here, really honored.
0: So let's start out with you telling us, what is polyamory in the modern era?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, polyamory was a word that was invented in the 90s, and it takes the root of two different languages. So poly means many, and amory means love. So the word polyamory is meant to be somebody who wants to have the kind of relationship where they're able to have love and typically it's romantic love but it doesn't always mean romantic love it can just mean love more than one person who in our default culture it may not be accepted Um, you're supposed to just love one adult and you know certainly you can love your children and family members but there's like barriers to who you can love so this just sets you free and it's consensual everybody involved knows about it and consents to it and it doesn't mean there aren't gonna be feelings about it, but at least everyone is aware that, that it's happening, that there's more than one love going on. Now, I also coach people who are swingers or have open relationships, which doesn't necessarily mean they're having um, you know, regular, romantic, ongoing connections with people. It could mean that they just um, have friends with benefits. You know, um, There's a whole variety of ways that people have non-monogamous connections um, but polyamory tends to be those that involve love and ongoing connection.
0: So the way a person differentiates between an open relationship and a polyamorous relationship is depends on the level of intimacy involved. Is that correct? Or,
1: um, well, help, you know, help us here. Yeah, it's a good question because. People who practice this love style or this form of relating tend to be rebellious types in the first place who don't wanna go along with the mainstream. So any person you ask will might have a slightly different definition of it. So definitions will only go so far, but from what I've seen, the most common ways of it being defined are that ethical non-monogamy is an umbrella term. And on one extreme, you can have swingers who go to parties and sex is recreational. Um, I just, there's a really fun um, Netflix movie called The More, The Merrier. It's based in Spain and it's way sexier than any show in America can be. <laughs> so I highly recommend it. It's called The More, The Merrier. And Can,
0: can Americans get it on Netflix? Oh yeah, yeah,
1: It's, it's like uh, o- dubbed over in English. It's kind uh-huh. of funny, but yeah, it's super sexy and One of the things they say in that movie is they go into the swinger club and they tell people, leave your emotions outside. So that's like the typical swinger mentality is cut off your emotions, just bring your body in. This is just going to be pleasure only. Okay. So that's one extreme. The other extreme, I'll give you an example. I went to a polyamory conference many years ago. There was a group of us sitting around the lunch table, and somebody said, let's go around and share how we do polyamory. And one woman said, It bugs me when people think that polyamorous folks are promiscuous because this woman was in her 50s. And she said, because I've only been with four men in my life and three of them are here with me at the conference. So in other words, she's only had sex with four men and three of them have stayed in her life long term. (laughs) So that's an extreme example of somebody who's more on the polyamorous end of the spectrum where they're not into going to play parties or having casual sex they just love really big. And when they love somebody, they stay in their life forever, but there's tons of gray area in between. So I would say open relationship is just kind of a um, loose term for somebody who's in a relationship that's not monogamous, or they may, may not even have a primary partner because open relationships doesn't necessarily mean that you have a husband or wife or someone you live with. There's something called solo polyamory, where you treat every relationship as an equal that person is equally important there's no hierarchy okay so it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a couple opening your relationship it can also be that you just practice open relationships in general so there's so much variety within those two extremes does that make sense
0: It's confusing to, <laughs> to uh, it, it, it's confusing uh, I'm trying to, to get a handle on some principles to be able to uh, to differentiate so, in other words, everybody who's in, in in an open relationship is not necessarily polyamorous at all.
1: Correct. So polyamory is no longer used as an umbrella term. Um, the umbrella term now is ethical non-monogamy, and we even use the acronym ENM. Excuse me, ENM.
0: Ethical non-monogamy. I have, I have a I have a hard time with with groups and, uh, and, and concepts that are described as non, like in psychology, there's a lot of this uh, talk about what's called non-dual psychology yeah. and, and non-dualism. And I wish there was a way of putting that in the positive. If something is non-something, it's one thing, but what about what it is? I so-
1: 100% agree with you. And I wish there was a term as well, that describe what we are rather than what we aren't.
0: That's right. You're being described when you say non-monogamous, you're being described as what you're not
1: yeah. rather than what take you it, are. Yeah, and to take it even a step further, Richard, putting the term ethical in front of it implies that most non-monogamous people are unethical whereas you don't say i'm ethically monogamous correct <laughs> so i've actually started dropping the term ethical a lot and just saying i'm non-monogamous
0: yeah i mean and there not, is
1: non-monogamous one. has become kind of a word see how fast i say it non-monogamous like it's it's not even a not it's not even a, a opposition to monogamy anymore because it's kind of become its own word <laughs>
0: Yeah, it is really to say, you know, ethical is, is, is really just by saying that almost implies that there's a reason to be defensive. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the one place where I saw that I thought the use of the word ethical regarding the sex, you know, fit is in Janet Hardy's book, The Ethical Slut, right. because there, you know, the word slut in and of itself implies something that's not nice. Correct. so and by they're,
1: and they're reclaiming that word because yes. all it means is somebody who's consensually choosing to have sex frequently with more than one person.
0: Yeah. So people who are polyamorous, which is the group that you stand for and are a spokesperson of if I understand correctly.
1: Oh no, I really um support people at all forms of non monogamy. Personally, I I in my own personal life and and relationship practice, I I do fall under the polyamory part of the spectrum.
0: So people who are involved in a polyamorous relationship, um, aren't necessarily in open relationship.
1: Well, I'm not right now. I don't have a husband. I don't have a wife. I don't have a nesting partner, which is a term we use. There's nobody I live with. I don't even have an anchor partner right now. Um, I've had my whole life. I've had a primary partner. I've been polyamorous, for 25 years and all those time all that time until the pandemic started i had a primary partner and that my pri- last primary partnership ended right when the pandemic started so horrible timing
0: <laughs> terrible terrible timing the worst
1: so i've been dating online but oh. ha- and have met some sweet people but haven't met somebody who's like a life partner type person however here in hawaii I am in a relationship with a couple. So there's a pre-existing couple that um, have been together for about three years and they are primary partners. And we have slowly fallen in love um, since probably just since I moved here over the past year. I loved them as friends before, but we've you know moved into um, more romantic love Mostly, I'm primarily heterosexual, so mostly with the man, but I, I have deep love for the woman as well, um, and that has evolved into being a romantic sexual connection, so I'm part of a couple now.
0: But you're not living with them.
1: No, but they kind of are vagabonds. They sort of go here and there, so oftentimes they stay with me quite a bit, but they're not, this isn't, I wouldn't say this is their home, but they're frequent guests.
0: <laughs> now... Now, is that the kind of thing where eventually the three of you would live together as a as a toit?
1: No, there's no there's another term. We have lots of terms. There's a term called relationship escalator. And in the, uh, default, t- in, the, in the default world, if you start dating somebody and you start having sex with them regularly, there's kind of an expectation that we're going to eventually go toward living together. If you're younger, maybe you, you, there's an assumption you're going to start a family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's no uh, assumption or expectation here that there's any relationship escalator. It's just us sharing love, acknowledging that this is an unusual time in the world, and I may find a life partner in the future, and things may shift between the three of us, but we're just really enjoying it right now for what it is.
0: And and you, you, you just mentioned a few moments ago that you've been practicing, if you will, um uh, polyamory for 25 years. Correct. Now that means you started quite young because I mean, I'm looking at you and you still look young, but of course, everybody looks young to me. So, (laughs) so how did you start out on something so unconventional at such an early age?
1: I wasn't an early age. I just, you're looking at me on zoom and I've just mastered the art of lighting. (laughs) I'm 61, so I started in my late 30s, so that wasn't terrifically young.
0: Yeah, 36. Well, okay, I see what you mean.
1: Yeah, so um, I had always cheated in my relationships. Um, I would be able to stay monogamous for a couple years, two to three years, and then I would end up fooling around with somebody else and hating myself for it.
0: So because I, Hating yourself because you were breaking a deal?
1: Yeah, I was lying. I was hiding it from my primary partner. Why? Because I thought that's just what the only option available.
0: <laughs> I didn't
1: know that you could actually talk to your partner about that and agree to it. It was just a new concept to me. So when I went to a workshop, um, I, I saw other people that were polyamorous. I went to a workshop at Harbin Hot Springs. And I saw other people were being polyamorous, and I was like, "Oh, I don't have to cheat anymore. I can just talk about it."
0: <laughs> this is you went to this workshop when you were about 35 or 36 years old.
1: Yes, uh-huh.
0: and, and, uh huh. And oh, I see. And the, and discovered polyamory.
1: Correct. And then I learned that oh, I can just be honest and talk about this and tell my partner what I want. Now, just because I learned that it was a thing, it didn't mean that I could immediately do it, because we have all this monogamy programming all of us do we live in a culture that that's the assumption that's the default and you're bad if you don't do it and you know we, a lot of us have like religious programming and you know strict parents and so forth who have shamed us about our sexuality so there's a lot to untangle there and you know overcome before you can really um change the way that you communicate with people i was afraid that if i told my partner i wanted to see other people that he would then do the same. And I didn't know if I could handle my jealousy. So I, I could see other people myself, but when my, other, when my partner saw other people, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? That's where you have to manage your jealousy. So I was afraid I couldn't handle my jealousy. Some polyamorous people just aren't very jealous to begin with, but, but some are. And I'm, I'm just as jealous as anyone else. I've just had to learn dance with my jealousy and learn to transform it into something that I can play with live with learn from you know dance with so
0: I've got to hear more from you about dancing with jealousy
1: Mm -hmm. please
0: please do what you can to elaborate
1: okay well I teach a workshop now based on my it probably took me 10 years out of the 25 years to really not be susceptible to complete and utter meltdowns (laughs) like for example I was 10 years into practicing polyamory and my five-year partner decided he wanted to not it felt like a demotion to me I was his primary partner for four years for three years so for the the prior three years I had been his primary partner and then he decided he wanted to go back to a former partner and kind of treat us both equally in his life. He wanted to see us an equal amount. He wasn't even demoting me below her. He was just wanting more equality in how often he saw the two of us and how much time and devotion he gave us in his life.
0: How did he he want the living arrangement to look like?
1: Well, he had already lived with her. They just had become kind of roommates for a while, and she was in another relationship. And when her other relationship ended, they kind of looked at each other and went, oh, I kind of like you after all. <laughs> so they wanted to start kind of reconnecting again. And I just did, want
0: Did he want to continue living with you, but seeing no, no, her? No, no.
1: He, no, he was living with her the whole time.
0: The right. Whole time. The whole t- the, the beginning, even the beginning of your relationship with him, he was still living with her.
1: Correct. So for the first year, so I saw this man for five years, the first year, I assumed that he was a polyamorous man in an open marriage. Okay. So I dated him as if I were a secondary partner. Okay. Then she got into a new relationship. She fell madly in love with somebody and started traveling with this man and she was hardly ever home. And they were, rarely ever saw each other. They maybe just had to say, "Let's have a date," you know, because we're never seeing each other. They were just ships passing in the night. So they would have a date two or three times a month, just to kind of even spend any time at all together. And so for three years, they didn't see each other very much. And I, be, by default, I guess we became primary partners for each other, um, even but, you though know,
0: you, even though you were not living together.
1: Correct. So we would still spend about. Um, four or five nights a week together, um, either at his house or my house. He had a bigger house, so he had like a guest room or he would come to my one bedroom apartment and spend the night with me and then, you know, get up in the morning and go to work. Um, So we spent a lot of time together, every weekend, every vacation for three years, even though his residence was at this other place. So for three years, I felt like his primary. And then she ended her other relationship and decided she wanted to spend more time with him again. And the reason why I had a meltdown was because they wouldn't talk to me about it. They wouldn't, I thought we were, here's another term for you, lots of terms, kitchen table polyamory. That's where you can sit around the table and talk about what's going on, make sure everybody's needs are met. And they wouldn't do that. I kept asking them if we could just talk about this change that's happening and how we can all get our needs met, but they wouldn't. They weren't willing to do that. They weren't willing to give me the time to do that. So I just had to do my work myself without getting to talk to them about it. And I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle watching them reconnect in their romantic love again, right in front of my face without me really getting a chance to process my feelings about it. So I tried to do the work on my own, but it was just too much for me. So I I said, I'm going to have to step away. It's too painful. So I stepped away.
0: You were squeezed out the way you're describing it. You it really felt that
1: way, yeah. Sure. And they were like, "No, we," you know. He said he still wanted me, but he just wasn't willing to involve her. He even went to therapy with me alone, mm-hmm. but I he just wouldn't facilitate the three of us talking about it. Mm-hmm. He said he just does separate. He goes, "Sorry, I just do separate dyads."
0: So he <laughs> what what he wanted in effect was a variation of uh, of polygamy. <laughs>
1: Well, maybe, but he's just used to doing separate dyads. The only time the three of us ever sat down and talked together in all of those five years was when he had engaged in risky sexual behavior and we had to have a conversation about the potential that there might've been an exposure to an STI. Mm -hmm. And there there wasn't, but we just needed to talk about it. And Mm -hmm. the three of us sat down and talked about it and he was sweating bullets. Like he was so uncomfortable being with the two of us at the same time. We'd been in groups together, but never like the three of us alone, except that one time. So that's what I was asking for. And he it was just way out of his comfort zone. He couldn't do it.
0: Well, I made the quick comment about uh, about uh, polygamy, because from my perspective, based on what you're saying in my other reading, in polyamory, uh, everyone in the group, if it's a three or if it's a four, the people talk to one another. It's, there's open communication uh, there isn't a squeezing out of uh, certain people or people at lower levels, so to speak. So as soon as you said, described it the way you did, you know, it it did sound like a guy that wanted to have two separate women and call it a day.
1: Well, I want to own that this is my side of the story. Of and course. As, a rela- as a relationship coach, I know there's always two sides to every story. He uh-huh. has a different version of it. Right. But the, the point here is that that experience is what led to me really diving into my work as a coach, because I had to figure it out. I had to figure out how do I get into a relationship that's right for me? Look at all the different nuances of non-monogamy. Sometimes you don't even know what you want until you get out there and mix it up and try some things. So I got really clear that I need kitchen table polyamory. I need all of us to be able to talk. I need all of us to feel comfortable when we're all together. I call myself tribal amorous sometimes because I love when I'm in a whole community of polyamorous folks and we're all just, there's enough for everyone. We're all loving each other. We're all um, holding space for each other's jealousy and feelings. So back to the, your question about the jealousy, I've created a workshop called transforming jealousy into love based on how I learned to overcome the jealousy that, that led to that meltdown at that time. Um, This was about uh, 14, 15 years ago now. Um, yeah, so I've I've really learned to work with the jealousy. So if you want, I can go into that a little bit more.
0: <laughs> um, well, it's up to you if you want to go into it a little bit more. You well, described your, it.
1: That was your original question, but we just How do you, kind of you dance? Little... My uh, question
0: was, how do you dance? How, do you how, do you dance do you, how does one dance? The situation you gave I and mean, I got too involved with perhaps, because I, it was it, it, I, I didn't see that situation as a, what you might call a classic polyamorous situation. So, and, and I can, but it doesn't matter because, and, and I don't know if what you were experiencing was jealousy really, or getting squeezed out, which is somewhat different than jealousy because of the way you described it. But, but maybe if you came up with another, well, how do you, what do you tell people? What, what, what are some of the things that you, that you suggest to people as a way of dealing when there is actual jealousy going on, Mm -hmm. right? Let's say you're in a three and you're living together, the three of you in one place, but one person feels that the other two are giving each other much more attention. So you're jealous of that attention. You You wanna be part of it.
1: Right, well, that's a good example. The most common example I get with people like Coach is they are an existing couple they're newly opening their relationship, one of them meets another person first before the other, and the one who hasn't met anyone yet is super jealous. Um, or they have already fallen in love with somebody and they come to me to say, now what do we do? Because I've I've met this person and my partner's jealous. So that's a common thing. Good. Living, Good. Living, yeah, Living together, that could be the case, but it's less likely that people are living together, usually they're dating outside their couple.
0: Yeah, your um, examples are better. Let's go with those.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, well, um, the main thing is to reframe jealousy in that it's not something to be avoided. So common in the default culture, we're supposed—we assume we're supposed to do whatever it takes to keep our partner from feeling jealous. And if we do anything that might make them feel jealous, we lie about it. So we kind of avoid it like the plague. So there's a reframe there to say like, okay, jealousy isn't something that's going to kill you. It can be painful, but it can also be a really great um, sign of something that needs to grow or evolve within you. And I would say if you're not really into personal growth, if you're not really into uncovering all your buttons and your triggers and being the best version of you that you can be in this life, then don't open your relationship. Just stay with monogamy because it's certainly less triggering for the most part. Um, But if you really want to expand and grow and you're into that and you don't mind putting the work in, then open relationship is such a great way to learn about yourself. Um, I just told a client this morning that You know, I said, it's funny when people say they're going to open their marriage, the first thing that goes through their mind is like all this sex and sex with new people, oh boy. But no, the first thing is growth. (laughs) Before you can get to the fun sex, you got to prioritize your personal growth. So if you can reframe it that like, okay, when I feel jealousy, it's about me. It's not my partner's fault. They didn't do something wrong. They're just living their life and I got a button pushed. So what is that button? What do I need to grow? Is it insecurity? Do I need to look at why I feel less than somebody else? Is it scarcity? Do I feel like there's not enough time for me? Do I need to ask for more attention and time? Like in your example with people living together, it might just be that they're feeling scarcity. They want more time. They want more affection. They want more sex from their partner. They get to learn how to ask for that. If, if they still can't get it after they've clearly asked for it, then it might be time to change the nature of the relationship. Um, another question you can ask yourself when you're feeling jealous is, are you enmeshed with your partner? Are you codependent? Is you, are you making your life all about them? You know, is there a way that you can disentangle that enmeshment and maybe be more sovereign, um, make more friends, more intimate partners? They don't even have to be sexual. Just have somebody you can cuddle with and watch a movie, get your affection needs met somewhere else. Do you have a hobby that you're passionate about? You know, get more of a life so that you're not so wrapped up in everything your partner does. And then the fourth one is like, how's your spiritual life? You know, like, who are you really? Are you this person who needs attention from your partner all the time? Or are you something bigger than that? Because really, when we practice our spirituality, most people eventually come to the place that we are all infinite love. So when you can tap into the fact that that we are infinite love, there's no room for jealousy. So I encourage my clients to develop a spiritual practice.
0: To what extent is fear of loss part of that jealousy? I mean, in the the example you gave, a couple are living together, they open up their relationship, one person finds somebody and starts having a relationship with them. To what extent is that other person in a situation simply afraid they're going to lose their partner, because the partner is going to run off with that other person.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really good question. And that is very common. And what I would say is,
0: is the question does, common or is the activity of losing the partner common or both?
1: No, the question is very common. And I mean, it's not the question, but the feeling in the, the one who's not dating someone else, that feeling is very common. Okay. The one who's feeling like they might lose their partner. Okay, the first thing I say is, would monogamy solve that? Would monogamy guarantee that your partner is never going to leave you?
0: Well, there's no guarantee of anything, you know that.
1: Right. And what I've learned is that the more you can set your partner free to express themselves, the more likely they want to be with you. Because why would they let you go if you're celebrating their full expression in life? And sure, it's possible that your partner could meet somebody who's basically monogamous and convince them to leave their partner and stay monogamous with them. But that points more to a weakness in the original relationship.
0: I would think that that outside relationship, let's say Fred and Ellen are living together as a couple. And let's say Fred meets uh, Harriet and starts having a relationship with her. They're dating and having sex. Now, what Harriet offers to Fred is something that Ellen can't offer to Fred, which is all the excitement and romance and sex of a date and sex, whereas what Ellen is involved with with Fred is who's going to take out the garbage and how are we going to pay the bills and how we, who cleans the house and who takes out the door, you know, all the, all the stuff of cohabiting. There's a lot of stuff that's got to be done, right? The other person, the other person has all the glamour, a dinner, a dinner out, sex afterwards, hot dog. What, how do you beat that? So,
1: no, you're you're touching on all the really common things, which is why people need me. <laughs> so this well, is another common situation. So exactly why we're talking
0: to get this out to the public. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we have a term for that, too. So um, his new relationship, we call that NRE, which stands for new relationship energy. So NRE is that honeymoon phase, that exciting. You know, you're almost kind of drugged with that, the hormones and the serotonin and the dopamine and all the all the feel-good hormones are going and an experienced person with open relationship will know that that's a temporary state. And when I coach people who are new, I just say like, Hey, you're in NRE or your partner's in NRE. It's that never lasts in the history of humankind. (laughs) Nobody has ever stayed in NRE in a relationship forever. Okay. So um, one thing that the partner who's not in NRE can do is practice letting them have that experience they may not immediately feel happy for them which we call compersion compersion is a word for when you feel so happy that your partner's having this awesome time that would be great if you could feel compersion for them like i love you hank and i'm so happy we've been married for 30 years and i'm so happy you get to have this exciting new love affair and at the same time, I'm feeling a little insecure because I can't make you feel that way anymore. But I know that's just my insecurity and I'm gonna go over here and work on that with my therapist, or I'm gonna to continue to find another partner myself, or I'm gonna um, tend to my art that I've ignored for the last 20 years. You know, Whatever it is, they, they don't take it personally. They just notice the feelings within themselves and they let their partner go have that experience. Now, if the original relationship is strong, Hank is not going to just bolt on his wife to go be with this new love because they have a commitment that they're going to open their relationship but not leave each other. Okay? So if if he leaves her for this other person, like I said before that speaks to their original relationship didn't have the commitment and the tools to manage this open love style.
0: So talk to us about how people make such a commitment a commitment to purposefully getting involved with other people and also consciously and purposefully not letting their feelings and thoughts take them to such a place as they go off with that other person?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let me answer the second part first. Um, So with time, with practice, you can really get to where you own your feelings and not blame the other person. No matter how hard it may be, it's still my work. If my partner goes off with a new love and is having like amazing sex, they're swinging from the chandeliers, they're madly in love, and I'm feeling like I'm not enough, okay? There's several things I can do. One is I can say, you know, sweetie, I want you to give me a little more attention than usual. So, that I don't feel replaced by your new sweetie. So, if most people will feel so enlivened by their new sweetie that they have more juice to bring home, so it overflows. Because when it comes to sex and love, the more the more. It's not a pie where you take one piece out and there's less for everyone else. It's an ever expanding kind of energy. So, the more sex we have, I mean, I'm not talking about anatomically, like if you, you know, especially if you're an older person, you might not be able to, you know, have. Technical, you know, intercourse all the time, but the energy of sex and the energy of love is ever expanding. So that the partner who's got the new love can bring that energy back home and make their sex life even better. And I've seen that happen over and over again.
0: Um, I'll tell but- you a cute, a cute story that fits in with what you're saying. I interviewed a uh, courtesan uh, recently who has a great book out, by the way, uh, uh, called. Uh, uh, secrets of uh, tech secrets of, of uh, escorts. Um, and uh, Veronica Monet is her oh, name. Oh,
1: yeah, I know her. She's a friend.
0: Yeah. Oh, you're a friend. She's a friend of yours. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So she, she tells a great story about how being in a, in a married relationship and working as a courtesan, uh, how, how, the, the key to working that out. And she said, her husband said, you can do anything you want, but don't have orgasms. So, so what that meant was she go out and do her work all day, and when she came home, she was ready to go because she wanted to get finally have that <laughs> orgasm. So she came to him totally prepped. And I thought that was a that was a very creative way to handle that uh, particular situation.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So what the the main thing I want to mention right now is that. Sometimes the feelings that come up from jealousy can trigger serious old trauma in people. So it can be more than just, oh, I'm feeling insecure and I need to work on that. Or, oh, can you spend a little more time with me if you're going to see a new partner? Can we make sure that we have sex before you go on the date or the night before or when you get home? You know, you can make requests of your partner so that you're not feeling neglected when they have a new sweetie. But for other people, it can trigger really old trauma and you can just go feel like you're insane and you don't know why you can't manage your feelings. You're just feeling horrible all the time. Even if in your head, you're saying this makes sense to me. I agreed to an open relationship. I've read all the books. I understand it doesn't mean I'm less than and yet in my body, I feel horrible and Maybe they even act out and start saying mean things to their partner or doing self-harm. Well, that's because their their old traumas are triggered. And so I work with people with um, inner child healing processes to go back to that stuck place within them when they were young that that got frozen in time that wasn't ever dealt with. Um, If it's really significant trauma, I might refer them to a trauma-informed therapist for like EMDR or some kind of more um, advanced practice around healing trauma. But I just want to name that, that that old trauma can definitely come up from this love style.
0: Um, To what extent is an open relationship always open sexually? How much does sex play a part in an open relationship?
1: Well, one thing to keep in mind is that there's no... um, relationship police that are going to come and knock on your door and say you're not doing it right so you know we live in a free country we get to it's illegal to be married to more than one person but outside of that there's nobody telling us how we want to do it so the foundation of any open relationship is getting the communication down and that's one of the first things i teach my couples is how to have weekly conversations to attune to each other, to connect, to feel safe, and then to make requests and to be able to hear each other's requests without reacting and getting defensive or going ballistic, but becoming a tellable person, being someone that your partner can tell things to. That's one of the first skills I teach my couples so that they can design the kind of relationship that they want. So maybe one person wants to have... um, a love partner that they simply go on dates with and never have sex with. And that could be, make their partner jealous, you know, because there's love there and connection and late nights of talking. Right. Whereas another couple might feel okay with the sex, but don't want the late nights talking. So everyone's got different needs and boundaries and ways of doing it. You just have to get the communication down so that you can be honest about what you want and work that out with your partner.
0: And how do children fit into this picture?
1: Well, that's a really good one. I don't have children myself, but I have worked with clients who have children, and I do read a lot about it on the the forums that I'm on. And a lot of it depends on whether the parents have careers or other factors in their life where they could be significantly harmed if people knew that they weren't monogamous, right? Like if they're school teachers, um, if they're some kind of a pillar in their community and their church or something, for some reason they really can't be outed, then they really have to keep it from small children because small children, you can't ask them to hold this as a confidence. That's not fair to a small child, nor nor do they even know how. Um, But if the children are a little older, they can usually keep a confidence um, I work a lot with mature couples who kids are grown, and so they don't care. Their careers are already established, or they're kind of on the tail end of their career, and they really don't care what anyone thinks of them. Um, but if you have small children, and you don't have a career that can be affected by being outed, then I would say, you know how children are. If you are really intense about something and you feel like it's a big deal, they'll pick up on that energy. But if you're matter of fact about something, then they just take it as matter of fact. So having extra lovers around is just like having extra aunties and uncles. And you're not going to tell children what you do in the bedroom. You don't even do that when you're monogamous. So obviously you're not going to share that. So if they see see you being affectionate with other people and you normalize that, then children will just feel normal about that. And it really just depends on the other factors in your life.
0: I would think it would be more difficult with teenagers who want to know
1: yeah the U that you factor is there for teenagers and even young adults can think it's really weird if their parents are you know doing that kind of thing but you know it really just depends on each situation um and not everybody has the kitchen table polyamory kind of thing but i know lots of people who have children that are really involved in the whole thing not sexually but you know know what's going on and it's such a bonus for children because they say it takes a village, right? Like they've got lots of adults loving them, lots of people in their life, extra people to care when someone's sick, when a child or another adult is sick, there's more people around to help with that. So having that community is a huge extra bonus. But a lot of people practice open relationship outside the home. They go on dates, they do it outside, they don't bring it home. It's a separate thing. It's just part of their entertainment or whatever. So it really just depends on the situation.
0: And how does typically the family, if you don't mind using yourself, example, or use one of your clients as an example, how does the family, the sisters and brothers and the parents of the polyamorous person or the open relationship person, how do they deal with that?
1: Well, it's really similar to being gay, where there's a a point where you have to come out to your family. (laughs) and um that's an individual choice for everyone to feel like and it's usually often a very scary moment because they're often not sure how their Uh family's going to react but it, it just like being gay you get to a point where you can't stand hiding who you are so let's say that i'm married and i have a new lover that i've had for five years and it's you know my husband knows about him and It's a deep love connection, and he's not going anywhere, and I'm so tired of not being able to bring him to Thanksgiving. That's an example. Or I've been bringing him and acting like he's just a friend, right? And I eventually want to tell my family, like, hey, me and Buster are more than friends, and I just i am tired of having to hide that, you know? So that might be an example. But I did something many years ago. I was reading, remember the book, Radical Honesty? Yes. So I was reading that book. I was like, you know, three quarters of the way through it. <laughs> I just blurted it out to my mom. <laughs> she was very upset. And it probably wasn't the best way to do it or the best timing. I just was very influenced by that book. Like, I just got to tell her, mm-hmm. she, you know, she comes from a Catholic background and she was, you know, older and, and she was just like, oh, I just don't understand. And She was very upset and it just felt like it was kind of selfish. Like it didn't do me any good to tell her Mm -hmm. at that moment, you know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't even living in the same city as her or anything, but what was good about that is when I became a professional open relationship coach later, she already knew. And when I told her like, Hey mom, I'm going to start advertising on Facebook and social media about what I do. And I just want to remind you about that. she's like, okay, I know dear, you know, so she'd had many years to kind of get Mm -hmm. used to it by then. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, again, it's similar to being gay where you just have to measure, is it worth it? Um, you know, sometimes family members will, will cut you off at least for a while. And you just have to learn to make a choice. Like, is this way of relating more important to me than my family? Is my family so screwed up that I don't really care what they say? You know, every situation is different.
0: When you take a long view, to what extent is are open relationships and polyamory sex driven? And to what extent are they driven by other factors?
1: Hmm. Um, I'd say, you know, open relationship is more driven by sex. Um, but polyamory is not because I have, I have so many, I've, I've been throwing out all my terms for you. So here's one more term. Good. I have a post romantic partner. (laughs) So I was um, in a primary partnership for eight years and sex was problematic between us, but everything else was great. So we decided to take that off the table. So we'd stop fighting about it. And eventually we both started seeing other people. I mean, we already had other lovers, but, you know, eventually we stopped talking multiple times a day we never lived together so we didn't have to move out but we stopped talking every day and you know slowly slowly over time we we would talk every other day and then a couple times a week and then one of us would go on vacation and not call each other for the whole week and so slowly over time we got to where we're not so connected as we were but we still have the same love and the same feeling of life partnership Um, we're going to be in each other's life for as long as, you know, we're both alive. Um, We have each other's backs. We call each other when we want to celebrate an important moment, or we have an extra hard thing going on and we get support. Like we still have that intimacy, but without the sexuality. So I think that polyamory is a great way to stay connected with all of the people that you've ever loved and not have to cut them off just because your next partner doesn't think you should be talking to your ex, you know? (laughs) So you can still keep all your loves in your life. It's just the way the design of the relationship can shift and change, but the love is still there.
0: Letha Haddadi, in her book, Three in Love, which if you haven't read is a great book, a really great book. um, She says that polyamorous people living together is more like the basic family group because so many of us grow grow up in a household with at least three people. And I say so many of us because obviously there are a significant number of us nowadays who are growing up with one parent. So I don't mean to be disrespectful of that group in the slightest. But she's talking about what we consider the basic family group or unit, which is two people and a child and or two people and more children. And she says, polyamory is more like that because you have at least three adults living together. And it feels very comfortable, emotionally comfortable for that reason. And she makes a strong case for polyamory being much more than about sex, that it's more about the unit living together in a kind of small tribe. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to a question, because you mentioned um, polyamorous groups uh, earlier today. And um, are there polyamorous communities? Is that what you meant by polyamorous groups? Are there communities of people who live together that we don't know about or don't hear about that are polyamorous?
1: (laughs) Um, so I think I use the term tribal amorous. Um, uh, yes, there are many communities. Some, A few of them live together. And most of them that I've been involved with are communities that come together for events and parties or retreats. Okay, So temporary living situations or evening events. And it's a loose knit community where it's not always the same exact people every time. But let's say there's a community of hundred people and at any given event you'll see some subset of them so you start to see the same people over and over you may not have dates with them outside of the events but you're seeing the same people over and over so you begin to have relationships with them on a lighter level and you may have some kind of a physical romantic or sexual connection with them at the event um we used to call them swinger parties, but now they're called play parties because swinger parties implies that there's couples playing together with other couples. Okay. This is not always couples. This could be couples who go, but don't play together. They just go their separate ways in the party. And then they drive back home together. It could be singles who, who go and just, you know, they're open to meeting a partner. They just don't have one at that point And they still go and play with people. Or it could be somebody who's in a partnership, but their partner doesn't like play parties, so they go without them. So, play parties tend to be all kinds of people who are in all different configurations of relationships. And play parties need strong consent education. So, a lot of the communities that I'm in have some kind of an orientation that you go through where you learn how to say no, how to, how to, um, negotiate boundaries how to talk about risks of STI there's a lot of education that you need to have to make a really good play party community so that is happening right under our noses and then as far as the communities that live together there are I know of one in Hawaii which I'm going to be going to a retreat that they're hosting next month on the big island Um, they started as a polyamorous um, community together there's like all these different Uh, lover relationships there's probably about 12 of them and most of them have one or two lovers they're not all lovers with each other but each person has you know between one and three other lovers within the 12 and so they live together in their own land in a eco village like a permaculture village that is off the grid you know they have their own water and solar power etc and they host Um, one or two retreats a year at their place for other like-minded, free-love individuals.
0: (laughs) Are are they open? Like, do they have a website or are they quiet about it?
1: No, they're pretty open. I mean, because they do host events there and that's part of how they make their living.
0: That's why I asked if they had a website.
1: Yeah. Um, Can I give it to you later? Maybe put it in the show notes because I don't have it off the top of my head.
0: Sure enough. Okay. Yeah.
1: It's something like PERMA. From a culture, Hawaii.org, something like that.
0: Yeah, you can send it to me. We could give them a plug if they're doing workshops. They, they, uh, they want the business.
1: Right, definitely.
0: So the divorce rate in the United States is, um, is over 50%, which indicates that coupling in and of itself and at least in the ways that we're doing it in these United States is a, uh, is a very difficult endeavor. Mm-hmm. Does opening the relationship, whether it be open relationship and or polyamory, make it more difficult because of the complexities of the vectors of all the different relationships? And if so, Does the polyamorous or open relationship person more likely to find themselves in a series of relatively short-term relationships rather than going the distance, like the 50% who are successful are able to go or not?
1: Well, I thought you were going to ask me, do open relationships last longer and are less likely to end in divorce than monogamous relationships? That's where I thought your question was going. (laughs) but you kind of went somewhere else with it. You
0: you can answer that question also, if you like.
1: Um, Well, there's a a researcher on polyamory named Elizabeth Sheff, and she's done a lot of academic research on um, polyamorous people. And...
0: How do you spell her last name?
1: uh, S-H-E-F-F. Thank you. And the studies have shown that people in open relationships are a few percentage points happier. They claim to be happier in their relationships than monogamous people do. And again, this is not an easy endeavor. It takes a lot of work on yourself. And like I said, after 10 years, you know, I had a huge meltdown. So, um, and I know two people, I was just listening to an interview with two people who are fairly big names in this subculture. And they also noticed like, wow, it was 10 years for me too. Both of them 10 years into being polyamorous had really, really difficult experiences. And so it's not something that you can learn overnight. You have to take it on as a lifelong practice and continually work on the monogamy programming and look for ways to shift your paradigm. Um, I'm polyamorous because it's an identity for me, like being gay. Like I said, I always cheated. I couldn't, I I can't thrive in a long-term monogamous relationship. It would be like A gay person saying, well, the society wants you to not be gay. So you're just going to have to deal with it. So they're not going to be happy long-term. Right. But other people can choose to be polyamorous or not. We call that being ambiamorous. (laughs) They can do it or not do it. It's not something that they are. Right. So I don't really have a choice. If I want to have a fulfilling thriving life, I got to figure this out. You know, um, so it's just going to be a way that I practice relationship for the rest of my life. And, um, you know, I know lots of couples that have been married a long, long time and have really successful open relationships and have other partners that they've been with long-term. Sometimes they have partners that come and go, but their primary relationship is very, very strong and they've figured it out over the years. They've worked through all of the jealousy and the, the, Insecurities and the communication issues and they've worked it through and they've gotten to a place where they love each other they're solid they're committed and they know how to roll with it, so it takes some practice, but I think it can really strengthen relationships.
0: So Letha Haddadi, who I referenced before, who, who was one of the three authors of the uh, three in love, she told me that when she went on a lecture tour. Uh, promoting the book. That people came out of the woodwork all over the country uh, telling her that they were in uh, various forms of uh, menage a trois, uh, which falls under, I believe, under the category of polyamory. And um, she said she was surprised almost to the point of shock of how many people came out of the woodwork to tell her this at these little, you know, talks that she gave uh, at bookstores all around the country. Do, do we have any way of knowing what percentage of the population fall into the, one of these two categories, open or polyamory?
1: Well, there I have seen some statistics and I don't remember off the top of my head, but it, it's still fairly low, you know, in the one or 2%, maybe under 5%. Yeah, um, I don't remember exactly, but it is getting more and more common. Um, there's more and more celebrities practicing it there's uh you know will and jada smith and their daughter also came out as saying that she's bisexual and polyamorous and she ideally wants to have a woman and a man that she lives with so Mm -hmm. more and more celebrities are coming out about it
0: which sort of lead the way i guess in a way kind of becoming
1: more normalized yeah so i think when people realize that there's an option for it and that um well let me just back up a second here so people often want to be polyamorous because they want more of something they're not getting, or they want something different than what they're getting. So they may want um, a different gender because they're bisexual or pansexual. They want to date genderqueer people, or they may want um, a different kind of sex than they're getting. They may want uh, more kink and their partner's not into kink. Okay. So they have their partner that they go get tied up with. but then they have their, their spouse that they come home to.
0: If the um, person who ties them up unties them. <laughs>
1: <Exactly> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, so yeah, that, that can really be additive to a relationship if the other person can let them go to go get that outside. If they don't want to give it to them and they can't be the opposite gender, than they are, if they can just accept that, I can't be everything to all people. And that's the other thing I want to say about the divorce rate is that our relationships, we're asking a lot of each other in the modern era. We're asking to, we're hoping to find this one person who is our lover, our best friend, you know, co parent, maybe even a business partner who like supports us in our careers and makes us the best version of us we can be. Even a bed partner, like that's even hard to share a bed with somebody. That's a whole extra thing. <laughs> you know. I know a lot of people that don't sleep in the same rooms because their sleeping styles are so different. So we're asking this one person to be everything to us. And it's a big burden to put on somebody. So if you can step back and say, it's unrealistic to expect this one person to be my everything. And so if you can open up to other people, you can get your needs met from, from a variety of people and not be so frustrated and angry at your partner for not meeting all those needs you can accept them for who they are and when I teach classes to mature folks like polyamory over 50 I say stop looking for the one like how's that been working for you so far (laughs) you know give up looking for the one that doesn't mean that you're never going to find that ideal life partner but just stop looking for them instead look for a few And be open-minded because you never know people who you normally wouldn't choose to be your partner. If you look for a few, most people have time in their life for like a maximum of three partners and maybe more on occasion, but regularly three is about most of us, about all most of us can handle. So if you kind of go out there, like I'm going to look for three partners, maybe one of them will end up being very, very special, but you're opening your vision to looking past the physical traits, looking past the checklist that you're trying to check off and just being open to connecting with different forms of people. And one of them may surprise you and turn out to be an incredible life partner.
0: Is it accurate to say that when you add people, you add complexity, that that's the tuition that you pay for the benefits?
1: Yeah, definitely
0: right more processing with another person more stuff to work out more emotional ups and downs you know yes. more more of everything that has to do with life in right. addition in addition to the fun of the sex definitely right yeah.
1: and one of my mentors talked about you know it's not like we have to process it's that we get to un, you know get naked like "Quote unquote, naked with each other, get real, share who we really are, be vulnerable, go deep with each other. We get to do that. Mm-hmm. It's not a have to."
0: Okay, Sumadi, uh, we got a great question here from our producer uh, David Springer, and and he wants to uh, hear you talk about how you deal with uh, various forms of uh, of diseases. Uh, that uh, sexual diseases when people are open or in polyamory, could you talk to that, please?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. That's a common fear, and studies have shown that people who are ethically non-monogamous have less incidences of STIs than the greater population of like single people because we know how to talk about it, and we know how we don't have shame around letting others know if we tested positive for something. So we have what we call safer sex conversations. Um, No sex is 100% safe. Even if you're monogamous, somebody could be cheating on you and not telling you. (laughs) So unless you're having no sex at all, there's no sex that's 100% safe. So we call it safer sex conversations. And there we talk about just when you're maybe going to have sex with somebody, maybe you've talked about it or you've started to you know, get into some heavy petting and you kind of pull back and say, would this be a good time to have a safer sex conversation? So you got to kind of stop what you're doing and just share like, what have you been tested for recently? What were the results of the tests? Um, What are your practices with other people? Um, Who are you fluid bonded with? Meaning who do you not use condoms with? Um, What are your agreements with your partner? Um, And what do we want to do together? What kind of barriers do we want to use or not? So you're making a conscious decision based on knowing what the other person has tested for, what their practices are, and then you can make a conscious consensual decision about I'm willing to take the risk or I'm wanting to use these barriers. So you make an agreement and then you move forward with that.
0: Thank you. So for uh, we're coming to the end of our interview, and uh, I have one last question which probably means I have three more, but I always say it's the last one. And then I think of something else. <laughs> so, so, but the, the last question is, um, a person or a couple come to you and they are traditional um, partnering monogamous or a traditional single that way. And they want to get involved in either open or polyamorous relationships. What do you tell them? What's the what, what's the big what are the first baby steps for someone listening to this or mm-hmm. reading this?
1: Well, I have a quiz on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com, that's um, how suited are you for ethical non-monogamy? So I would start there and see what how you score. And if you score really low, then you're probably not well suited for it. But if you really, really still want to do it. And you really want to commit to your personal growth, no matter what, and do whatever it takes to get past your traumas and your your old wounds and to get to where you really can love someone freely. If you're willing to put the work in, I believe anyone can do it. Whereas somebody who scores really high on the scale, they might already be well suited for it, not be be easily jealous. They may have a certain um, confidence in themselves and it's just not that hard for them. So it really depends on where they are on the scale, how much support they need from me. It could just be that they need some tweaking and some books to read and they're on their way. Whereas other people I have to do a lot of deep inner child work with them. So again, it depends. Sorry, I can't give you a definitive answer. It depends on where the person is on that scale with regard to how much um, support they
0: need. Well, the scale itself sounds helpful. So if you'd be so kind as to say your website, let's give you a plug so people know. But what say your website please?
1: Sure, it's sumatisparks.com, S-U-M-A-T-I, Sparks, as in sparks are flying dot com. And it's right on the homepage. It says, How suited are you for ethical non-monogamy? Take the quiz.
0: Sumatisparks.com. How suited are you for ethical monogamy? Take a look at that website, give yourself the quiz, and it's a good start. And that good start is a good end to our interview. I thank you very much for an educational and most provocative interview.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.